Hi everybody, Amber here. I just want to give a little disclaimer at the top of the show today. We typically record our segments on Thursday, and we did that talking about Jeffrey Epstein and the charges he's facing. We also mentioned in that story the Labor Secretary, Alex Costa. He was the Labor Secretary on Thursday, but it's Friday morning and he's stepped down. Just wanted to give that quick update because it gives some real color to what we talk about later in the show. And now let's get to it. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. William, Amber, it's great to be with you. It is great to be back. Yeah, yeah, it's good to be back. We so rarely skip a uh, episode of the show. The well-earned I missed week you off, guys, I think. though. Yeah, yeah. So I recorded my own episode over the weekend. What was it about? <sighs> we can't really get into it on the air. So that, 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 um, that, that'll never see the light of day, and right. I think we're better for that. Uh, what'd you guys do over the, over the long break? Really important things. I uh, watched a lot of streaming television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I watched uh, all of Fleabag, mm-hmm. which was a great catch up. It's on but the list. Yeah. I did what everyone seems to have done in America, which is watch the new season of Stranger Things. It was so good. It's great. The show rules. I haven't uh, I haven't waited in yet. I remember I, wa- I've, I watched the very first episode of the first season and then I checked out because it was like... Winona Ryder seemed to be like on another planet. Yeah, I don't she's know if very you, she had uh, Claire Danes and Homeland vibes. <laughs> and yeah. it, it, I, I mean to get around to it. It's obviously it's in the zeitgeist, big deal. But I, I can to, totally uh, see why she would have deterred you. A and bit I like Winona Ryder in that a lot. First it, it, it also, as a thirty, soon to be thirty-four year old man, it really weirded me out to see her as the mom. I will I felt, say, I, I felt super old. It, it, uh, the seasons as they progress do get a teensy bit repetitive. I mean, it's the same kind well, of the kids fight a thing, and that's what, what happens, what but. That, I, I think that for the genre, that's pretty common. Well, I was going to say that's sort of, you know, it's meant to be this sort of, you know, derivative thing. Yeah, like, that's totally. the value of the show. So it's, you know. Yeah. Well, you're the you're the brand man. Did you see that thing? Oh, there's, there's like 70 brand partnerships with the new season. Yeah. They're trying to do the whole. Um, like, they're doing like the some, new Coke. some like Reaganomic 80s consumerism commentary. Yeah. I don't know. If you that would be a very interesting concept, the idea of like like I haven't seen it. I'm just I, yes, well, we are we are making millions of dollars from this, but it's it's commentary. So it's, it's part of the you know. I'm not making the argument. I mean, they do uh, have uh, the key setting in the new season. This ruins nothing for you, Alex. Is a mall, and yeah. it's like oh, this yeah. '80s yeah. Um, consumerist thing. And it, big moment to, for malls, right? Well, now. they get to plant all these fun Easter eggs too, of just all sure. these nostalgia points where you see like the storefronts yeah. and like that kind of stuff. It's it's kind of great. Well, we could talk about this forever. Definitely. But I think we have a full show ahead. We've Definitely. got. Yeah. Um, later on, uh, we'll play an interview that I got to do with former acting solicitor general Neil Katyal. And he's going to talk with me about all of the craziness going on with the citizenship question on the census and some of the big takeaways from the Supreme Court term we just ended at the end of June. Yeah, we'll put a bow on our on our Supreme Court coverage for the year, and that'll be good. Um, before we get to that, uh, I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about sort of the biggest legal proceeding, biggest uh, news story, really, that's been going on, and that is the arrest and uh, charging of Jeffrey Epstein, the wealthy financier and convicted sex offender who um, now faces new charges, uh, similar charges, of basically running a child sex trafficking ring in New York and Florida um, between 2002 and 2005. Now, if you've even been, you know, 
half, you know, half-heartedly uh, paying attention to the news, you probably know that much. It's been right. kind of hard to escape. But we wanted to talk today. Uh, I think I think it would be instructive for everyone to talk about a little bit about the legal history of the Epstein case and more currently um, his legal team's what looks to be like an ill-fated strategy to uh, to get the charges dismissed. Yeah, I mean, these kind of crimes are not t- typically something that we focus on on the podcast, this kind of case. But I think, as you said, and we'll get into it in a little bit, it has very interesting sort of ramifications and, and other sort of wrinkles that, that are interesting to talk about. But before we do that, catch us up with the whole Epstein yeah. thing. I mean, I think people know the name. People, There's been obviously tons of reporting on it over yes. the years, but... but Situate us. Yes. So um, on Saturday, uh, Epstein, who again is just sort of, um, uh, I mean, it, the the news has like struggled to define like what he is in the in the cultural consciousness outside of noted convicted sex offender. Well, but he's and, a, and well, and we talked. To, well, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, and he anyway. He's um, he is a sort of New York bigwig, real estate guy, financier type, and he has sort of cavorted with. Um, he is he has had close proximity to many. In, Influential figures now, like including President Donald Trump and past President Bill Clinton. Um, he was arrested on Saturday um, coming back from France. He was arrested in the United States and he was uh, charged with uh, conspiracy and sex trafficking. Um, and these are, as you would imagine, about as unsavory of charges as we can discuss here. We'll try um, and just do it as delicately as possible. But he was alleged to have sort of recruited and enticed girls as young as 14 years old to um, engage in sexual activity with him. And in certain other instances, procuring young girls for um, sex acts with other men. Um, yeah, and you mentioned before we've we've already referred to him as a convicted yes. um, sex offender in the past. So what happened um, way back when? That matters. Kind of mirror. That of matters a great now. deal here. So the the charges that he faces now in the Southern District of New York um, very closely mirror the allegations. Um, that he faced when he was arrested in Florida in 2007. It dealt with this same period of time, 2002 to 2005. Um, there was a, uh, at that time in 2007, there was a 53-page indictment, criminal indictment, that was drawn up against him, but it was never filed with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Florida, um, which at that time was headed up by uh, Alex Acosta, who is now the Labor Secretary, which we'll talk about <laughs> in a second. Um, so the indictment was drawn up, uh, never filed. Instead, Epstein at that time signed a non-prosecution agreement, pled guilty to these charges. He was yep. uh, he served, I think, 13 months in prison, um, and he had to register as a sex offender in Florida. So that was 2007. These um, sort of rumors about him have continued to percolate, um, and he was arrested. Like I said, he was arrested last week on similar charges, and he was brought before the court in the Southern District of New York on Monday, uh, and he pled not guilty. And at that time, his lawyers basically said, these are the same charges that he was that he faced in Florida in 2007. This raises a double jeopardy question for us. Uh, This is the quote from his lawyer is a man named uh, Reed Weingarten uh, from Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, He said, this is basically a redo. We think that's at the heart of everything. And that will be the centerpiece of our defense, at least legally. So he's saying there uh, this is, you know, he's he has been charged with this before. Yeah. Or well, no, he he wasn't charged with it before because there were no charges filed. But he he faced these allegations before. There's a non-prosecution agreement he signed that would seem to close the book. Well, it's interesting, both from the you know you mentioned double jeopardy, the idea of uh, 
but also just from the practical sense of you know that that you think you have this agreement in place and whether or not it it holds up or what. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, how do we have a sense of like how? This argument will go for him. Yeah, um, our Miami reporter uh, Carolina Bellato, she wrote a really good piece on just sort of the the big picture, like legalese takeaways yeah. from 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 this type of thing. Um, she talked to a bunch of former prosecutors who basically think this this double jeopardy defense is 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 basically DOA. Um, the NPA, the non prosecution agreement that Epstein signed, specifically forbids future prosecution for those charges. In the Southern District of Florida, and it, that's it, it, not where we it are restricts now. It geographically to that district, um, and the attorneys, uh, the the New York uh, federal attorneys, um, at Monday's hearing basically said that they said we are not bound by this. This is is a very clear geographic limitation mm-hmm. in this in this NPA, and we have we have no obligation to honor it. Um, but even more problematic for the 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 limit of his specific NPA. Um, is that there's actually a whole other civil proceeding going on in Florida that's been going on for the past couple of months that Ca- that Carolina has actually been doing a lot of good reporting on. Um, and a judge ruled in February, a Florida judge ruled that um, the Epstein NPA that he signed violated a law called the Crime Victims Rights Act. And basically the reason that he said that was that when prosecutors and Epstein's attorneys signed this non-prosecution agreement, they uh, did so without notifying his victims, which is required uh, under that law. Um, the court there in Florida is working on several remedies, uh, whether it be striking down the NPA entirely. Hmm. Uh, and again, this is a civil case. so Or there could be some kind of restitution offered to the victims uh, covered by that 2007 uh, case. Either way, um, the very document that his own lawyers say will be at the center of their defense seems to be on on shaky ground in a couple of different regards. Yeah, um, and I think that this is so interesting because of that legal backdrop and so much of it centers around that non-prosecution agreement. It also brings us to our current labor secretary, who was the architect of that agreement. Yeah, he, so, was, he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida. He was. And um, he's faced a real, I think the word firestorm pretty much sums it up, about um, reaction to him being the architect of the steal. Mm-hmm. Um, congressional Democrats, everybody from Speaker Nancy Pelosi to heads of most of the employment-related congressional committees, the Democratic heads, um, also presidential hopefuls like Elizabeth Warren, they've all come out and asked that Acosta resign. Yeah, yeah. It's become a flashpoint. And we've talked before about the sort of, this is a separate, this is obviously a very specific case, but like about, you know, prosecutorial oversight and things like that, the Cy Vance stuff with the yep. Weinstein, things yeah. like that, um, which which is which is sort of in the ether with a lot of this stuff. Um, but Yeah, uh, I mean, we've bubbled up to a point here where typically, you know, if something comes out like this where... Um, one party is calling for the resignation of of someone in the government. Every now and then that will happen over some um, scandal. But it's gotten big enough now that Acosta felt that he had to hold a news conference about it. He did that on Wednesday. And he basically just defended his actions as a prosecutor. He said his office actually pressed for a tougher punishment than the state prosecutors um, who originally brought charges Mm -hmm. against Epstein. And those state charges, he said, would have let Epstein serve no jail time. Just <laughs> yeah. as a reminder, what Acosta actually got with this non-prosecution Set- agreement was 13 months in him registering as a sex offender. Mm-hmm. Setting an extremely low bar. Setting like we would, yep. like someone else was going to let him out for for, for, nothing. At, for nothing, and right. we we gave him something. Isn't yes. isn't the greatest defense? So yeah. 
That reaction you just had is exactly how reporters felt in this press conference. And they pushed him about several things, but they also just pushed him to apologize to the victims who, as Alex pointed out, didn't know about this agreement going into place. And also the sentence was very low. Um, So he was asked to apologize. And then he was asked if he has any regrets. He did not apologize. And then he said this. We believe that we proceeded appropriately based on the evidence. Look, no regrets is a very hard question. So he really just took a stand here saying that what he did was justified with the evidence they had at the time, stood by it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, but this isn't going to be the end of it. House Democrats have summoned Acosta to an oversight hearing. It's going to be on July 23rd. They're going to ask him to explain his exact role in this non-prosecution agreement and really get into it. So I think we're going to hear more about this in the weeks to come. at the end of every episode I tell people to check out our website law360.com I sent them there for all of your great content but there's more they can do on our site more yes indeed um, if they go to jobs.law360.com they can check out our job board and it's great for people looking to be hired we post jobs from all sorts of law firms and um, postings for all levels it's from associate all the way up through managing partners. It's great too if you're an employer and you're looking for really great hires, if you're looking for the next associate, if you're looking for whoever you need at your law firm, you can find them on the Law360 job boards. Uh, again, that's jobs.law360.com. And if you act now, uh, you can use one of our promo codes, promo code LAW360, LAW360, and you can get 25% off the uh, listing price. Again, that's jobs.law360.com, promo code LAW360. I'm excited for today's guest who knows a lot about the Supreme Court and is the perfect person to talk about some key takeaways from the term and discuss the citizenship question case that finally got some closure two weeks after the court ruled. I'm joined by Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general, Hogan Lovell's partner, and my favorite part of his Twitter bio, extremist centrist. Welcome to the show, Neil. Thank you. It's awesome to be here with you. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it. I'm such a Supreme Court nerd, um, and at the end of a term where we've had a little... Uh, a little time to process what happened over the course of the term. It's great to talk about big trends that emerged and things we're going to remember. So let me start by asking you that. What do you think were the biggest trends that came out of this term? Well, this is the first term since uh, Justice Kavanaugh has joined the court. And then, of course, Justice Gorsuch joined the year before. So we are seeing something of a shift in both of these years from prior courts. But Um, perhaps even more this year, because Justice Kavanaugh replaced Justice Kennedy, who many thought of as the swing vote on many cases. Now, you know, I don't think that kind of the conservative revolution that some were uh, predicting at the hearings materialized. I think that the court largely took a pretty centrist approach to deciding the cases. But the loss of Justice Kennedy and the addition of Justice Kavanaugh, I think most people do think will move the court a bit in the direction of the right. That's, after all, what President Trump campaigned on. Uh, And, um, you know, whether or not we saw it just this past term, I think we will start to see some of it in the future. 
Um, you know, I'm a data person, and so uh, I look at a bunch of different data points um, as I think about a Supreme Court term. I mean, one is just the standard, how many times are they reversing yeah. cases that they hear? Um, because the Supreme Court doesn't have to hear any case. They generally grant certiorari to hear cases with just a couple of exceptions. And last year, we did see something interesting, which is they reversed in 63% of the cases, which sounds like a lot, but actually that's down a lot from prior years. It's normally about three quarters of the time. And so basically, the rule of thumb is, if you win your case in the Court of Appeals, and the Supreme Court grants certiorari and agrees to hear your case, that's generally bad news for you. Three-fourths of the time, you're going to lose. Last year, it was a little bit less. Um, that could just be random numbers. Who knows? Well, do you um, think the- some of that maybe also is that we saw some some instances, in fact, quite a few, where it was the four liberal justices joined by one member of the more conservative side of of the court. We had some pairings that I was a little surprised by in some of our rulings this year. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's a great point. So really, there were 25-4 decisions this last year, 19% of cases that were decided. And Um, You know, seven of them had the five conservative justices in the majority, but the next most common pairing, which occurred four different times, was the four more liberal justices appointed by Democratic presidents, plus Justice Gorsuch. Yeah, Um, it's just such an unusual thing that I think when he was appointed to the bench, people did not expect that to happen often. Yeah, so I mean, I I, I did, um, and you know, I, I've I've watched his jurisprudence now for a decade, and um, you know, this is not surprising to me. Um, and Justice Gorsuch, and I think, uh, is one of the justices who will kind of try and approach things. And if you can make an originalist or a plain text argument, he's going to take it um, where it follows. And so, you so you see that trend. Another thing that's interesting, though, is the degree of unanimity on the court. This is something I focus. A lot on because the chief justice at his confirmation hearing said that's one of his goals is to have the court speak with one voice where they can. And he's been enormously successful of that um, in in many years. I mean, uh, four years ago, the unanimity rate was 66%, and you'd have to go back to the year 1940 to find another unanimity rate like that. Uh, A couple years ago, it was 59%. But last year, it was 39%. And you know, you could see this as perhaps some of the Chief Justice's colleagues not being totally on board, perhaps the new colleagues in particular, with this idea of unanimity and the court speaking with one voice. So that's one other thing to look at. Another thing we look at a lot is who's voting with who a lot, you yeah. know, who are the most stable voting pairings. And, you know, I, I don't think it'll surprise anyone to know that Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor were very high, agreeing 93% of the time, and the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh agreeing 92% of the time. Um, Disagreements, also perhaps not that surprising, both Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor disagreeing with Justice Thomas 50% of the time. So we are seeing, you know, something of a a bit of a fractious court. Well, what did we see when we um, line up the two newest justices? I know there was a lot of talk at some point that if Trump appointed two justices, they would take similar views on cases. But I don't think we've really seen that play out quite that way with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Yeah, certainly not yet. And in fact, they're almost adopting a, something of a different strategy. Here's one other way of looking at this from the data. You could ask, which justice is in the majority the most? 
And actually, last year, it's Justice Kavanaugh in the majority, 89% of the time, followed by the Chief Justice at 85, and then Justice Kagan at 83. And that's pretty interesting also. Kagan, who's considered more on the left of the court, but is in third place in that. But then you ask, who's the justice least in the majority? And that's Justice Gorsuch at 74%. So you have the two Trump appointees adopting, at least last year, fairly different approaches to uh, whether or not they want to be a dissenter. Well, one other trend that I'd like to get your take on, um, we have a great Supreme Court reporter here, Jimmy Hoover, who wrote a a story for us. uh, The headline was, I really loved because I love puns. I'm a sucker for them. It was something along the lines of, starry de crisis. Um, and, And he was just examining how the court has dipped its toe in many things this year, inching up to the line of of questioning what stare decisis really means these days. And I'd like to hear what you think about it. Yeah, Jimmy's a great reporter, and so I'm really glad you uh, raised that. Um, He's a good analyst on these issues, and I think he's right to say there is this real deep-seated crisis about the role of stare decisis. And I think you have different wings of the court. Justice Kagan, ever since she got on, so this isn't some new thing, you know, because of the change in composition of the court. She's been saying this for years, that the legal system is built on the bedrock of stare decisis. And when courts switch positions um, and take opposite and overrule prior decisions, it undermines the legitimacy of the court and the stability and guidance to lower courts and litigants alike. Uh, On the other side, you have Justice Thomas, um, and I think perhaps joined a bit by Justice Gorsuch, saying, no, you know, our job is just to interpret the law and read the plain text of the Constitution and statutes, and whatever they say is what controls. And, um, you know, obviously in the subtext here is the key decision that rests on stare decisis, which is the viability of Roe versus Wade um, with this new new Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court in 1992, when there was a similar transformation of the court and several new Republican justices, not Republican appointed justices got on, did have um, a moment in which they said, well, stare decisis is actually the way to reaffirm Roe. And so even though all three justices in that plurality um, opinion, Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor, and Justice Souter, were all appointed by Republican presidents, they made a pretty strong argument for adhering to stare decisis. And one question is, are these new appointees going to be persuaded by something like that? And that's where I think, even though none of these cases this last year really mentioned abortion, that's kind of the subtext of what's going on. So what do we think we see from what they've said in other cases that would, would point to the answer to that? I mean, are, should, should people that are um, pro-choice be worried uh, I certainly think that they should be worried about, uh, you know, about the full panoply of reproductive rights that the court has recognized over the last decades. Yes, um, uh, I think that this is a court that doesn't um, have nearly the same respect for precedent as the 1992 court. But there is an asterisk, and that asterisk is the chief justice, because I think the chief justice, for many, many years, has sounded similar notes to Justice Kagan about precedent. Um, And indeed, I can just tell you, whenever I'm arguing, if I have a really good precedent on my side, you can be sure um, as heck that I'm going to be looking at the Chief Justice and talking about that precedent and the role of stare decisis in our system. So a couple of years ago, I had a case called Bay Mills versus Michigan, a really important case about tribal immunity. And there were some 
strong policy arguments against tribal immunity for state regulation, but I knew the Chief Justice would care tremendously about overruling its prior decisions. And right. lo and behold, that's exactly what happened in that case is he voted to reaffirm the precedent that the Supreme Court had decided before. There are many examples of this, and I think it does reflect the Chief Justice, um, even uh, apart from his institutional role as Chief Justice, I think he just cares a lot about the stability of the law and the court as being a a stable expositor of the law. And so um, I think he is going to be something of a thorn in the side to those who really want a radical overhaul of the law, not just in things like reproductive rights, but but also say this whole project of overruling Chevron deference sure. and you know um, really changing the role of administrative agencies. I can see the Chief Justice saying, you know, I've got some qualms about this as a kind of philosophical matter. Should we be deferring this much? But uh, but this is water under the bridge after 70 years of precedent. Same thing with the non-delegation doctrine and things like that. So let's turn a bit to talk about some of the cases this term. Um, was there anything you found that was the most surprising opinion um, or anything that maybe was a little anticlimactic that you were expecting to be bigger fireworks? Well, before doing that, I just would like to raise one issue about last term, um, because there are so many practitioners who listen to this podcast. And, um, you know, I I try and draw attention to this wherever I can, because uh, last year, like many years, we if you look at the number of women arguing before the United States Supreme Court, it is abysmal. Last year, it was 17 percent. And the only positive thing that can be said for that is that it's higher than the 12 percent the year before. And I'm not aware of another profession at this day and age in 2019 that has these kinds of numbers. And, uh, and I'm certainly not, you know, just pointing the blame at others. I think, you know, my, me and and everyone that I work with, we have to do better too. Um, But I, I do think that as we think about and get into the cases that we're about to discuss, it's a pretty sad thing that those cases are really being argued almost always by one gender. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. What do you think some of the solution is? Is it just being more mindful that these numbers are so low and and staffing cases differently? Yeah, I do think minding. I think talking about it is actually part of the solution, um, and recognizing that this is a really serious problem for our bar, and then figuring out how do you go to clients and say, "Hey, here's a you know a new person to argue," um, and yeah, she hasn't argued before. Like right. we did this last year with uh, this it's a few months ago with Colleen uh, Sinstack, who's an amazing advocate. She clerked for the Chief Justice and for ju- uh, and for Chief Judge Merrick Garland. Incredible. But, you know, a client is always going to have some reluctance to have a new person who hasn't argued in the Supreme Court before and have it be their first case. Um, So, you know, figuring out how to deal with that and getting the client comfortable, watching, having them watch moots and watch her other arguments. um, I think all that's really, really important. But I think the bar itself all has to support each other in this endeavor. It can't just be done by, um, by one or two entities. Yeah. Um, so now I will circle back around to, uh, yeah. to the Sorry question. Sorry about, about the interruption. No problem at all. So what I want to know is, um, of the opinions that we got this term, was there anything that you thought was really surprising or um, maybe even something that was anticlimactic that you expected to be uh, more exciting and it kind of went out with a whimper? Well, I, I would say that the census case in a way was surprising. So I always 100% believed that the challengers were right. 
and that this was a pretext that the Trump administration came up with when they said we need to add the citizenship question because it would in help enforce the Voting Rights Act. Because for this administration to talk about enforcing the Voting Rights Act already, you know, I start to wonder since they've never brought a case under the Voting Rights Act. Um, and it just seemed like a made up rationale. Sure. And then you have this 277 page extraordinary opinion by Judge Furman in the Southern District of New York. I do think it may be the best district court opinion I've ever read um, that just demolishes these rationales um, that the Trump administration had floated. So, in one sense, legally and practically, I thought. This is just an easy case. Right. Um, but then we heard the oral argument, and the oral argument reminded me very much of the oral argument I had the year before in the travel ban case, in which uh, the administration's defense was pretty similar, which was, yes, you're saying it's a Muslim ban, and yes, the president campaigned on a Muslim ban, but the order doesn't say it's a Muslim ban, and you can't second-guess what the president is doing. It was the same argument to census. And there the Supreme Court did defer to what the administration's lawyer said. Here, in an opinion by the Chief Justice, joined by uh, four of his colleagues, they did not defer. They said it was contrived, that the rationale was contrived. That is an extraordinary thing for the Supreme Court of the United States to say about the president and secretary and the commerce secretary. Um, yeah, it's so, as close as they'll get to just saying y you lied about this. It's, it's the nice way to say that. It was very strident. Exactly. And so, um, and I think incredibly well-deserved. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the evidence was all there and marshaled in such a powerful way by Judge Furman. Um, so, uh, so that may be surprising, you know, depending on which lens you're viewing it through. It's 100% right. Um, but I do think that that sets a tone for the next year, the next, in, you know, maybe year and a half of the end of the Trump administration, because I do think the Supreme Court has said, you know, maybe in the travel ban we didn't do this, but, you know, administration, you're on notice that we're watching you and we are going to scrutinize your rationales. Well, now let's let's talk about what happened after that ruling came down. I mean, I think it's <laughs> fair, fair to say that Trump didn't take it well. Um, he then, you know, started saying that they would continue to fight. And uh, obviously the ruling had left open. Um, it, it had gotten remanded back down to the lower court so that the administration could try to come up with another rationale. But we were dealing with the realities of the time clock on when they needed to print the census. Um, so we had these influences coming together, but Trump fought for an additional few weeks about this. What do you make of that? Yeah, the whole episode was thoroughly bizarre because we had the decision come down, I think, on a, on a Wednesday or Thursday. And I read the decision, uh, and it was an obvious win. Um, you know, my co-counsel read the decision. They thought it was an obvious win. Um, the press read the decision. They thought it was an obvious win. The Justice Department read the decision and thought it was an obvious win and went into court saying we're not going to add this question. So the one person who probably didn't read the decision but said <laughs> he won, like, or whatever, was going to defy it was Donald Trump. And in the tweet and leaving right. the Justice Department holding the bag, admitting to a federal judge, look, we don't really know what's going on. Um, yeah, that was an astounding quote uh, totally. where the, the Justice uh, Department attorney had to literally say, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what yeah. they want me to do here. 
And Right, exactly. Then commenced a two-week process in which the Attorney General says we're going to have an executive order, and it looks like they're going to defy the court, and that's the way everything's going, and we're all ready for battle. And then all of a sudden, uh, it wouldn't, by the way, been a hard battle. All we'd have sure. to say is read the Supreme Court decision. Um, uh, but uh, but nonetheless, we thought we were going to have a fight. And then yesterday, the president, you know, with a lot of fanfare, says, I'm issuing an executive order to order the Census Bureau to use its existing databases to count the number of citizens. And uh, that and that was interesting in two respects. Number one, that's, of course, what all the challengers had been asking for and the right. Census Bureau itself. So the executive order did literally nothing. Zilch. Well, um, it's, it's the encapsulation of sort of this moment in history, I feel like, where um, if you didn't know much about this case and you were a casual cable TV viewer and you saw Trump delivering remarks, he really made it sound like he won. But if you know anything about this case, yeah, like you said, it's, it's what the challengers were asking for, not what Trump wanted. Exactly. So so one problem is um, he straight out completely lost in every way. Um, and uh, um, and then the second problem is, so he issues this new executive order, and you didn't hear a word about the Voting Rights Act, right. Milch, which was his original rationale. And that just tells you, I think, all you need to know about the way the administration's acting. And I don't think this is a political point at all. This is, I think Republicans have as much to lose from this as Democrats. When you have a president who's playing fast and loose with the law, um, really bad things will follow. Um, I want to go back just a, a notch to the actual um, Supreme Court opinion in this case. So it definitely was a win for the, the, the you and, and those who wanted to keep the question off the census. But the opinion did say that if uh, the rationale had been different, then this would have been allowed. What do you make of that for our future? I mean, is this setting up that if we're as fractured between Democrats and Republicans 10 years from now, that they'll just be more clever about getting this question on the census? Well, maybe, maybe not. I think, well, you know, time will tell as we get closer to 2030. And I think the Supreme Court did something really wise, which is, you know, you generally don't want to tie government's hands um, unless you really have to. And that's one of the most important things federal courts do is acts by not acting too much. Yeah. And so I think the court was wise in saying, look, all these questions about the outer reaches of the government's authority in this area, we'll leave for another day. Um, but something like this, in which you come to the court and say, oh, we're trying to enforce the Voting Rights Act, I think the Supreme Court is basically saying, look, Mr. Trump, you can lie to the American people, but don't you dare lie to the federal judiciary. That seems like the perfect final words to end this interview on, because um, I think that's advice everyone should heed, and I can't believe we have to say it in this day and age. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Thanks so much, Neil, for being on the show with me. Really appreciate you explaining all of this. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Our show is something offbeat, and Bill, you have one for us today. Yeah, it's a it's a securities case, and we got to say right off the top, uh, uh, spoiler alert for Game of Thrones. Well, um, I mean, I, you you're so weird. I, I, I feel like you're joking, but I mean, it's it's recent enough. Like if you're making your way through it and you haven't gotten to the last episode of Game of or well, the last season of Game of Thrones, yeah, like. Hit the hit the fast forward a couple. Yeah, times. I mean, now's the moment to jump out. We'll but, send you uh, a courtesy that this that this judge did not. 
So um, we're talking about this weird ruling that came out last week from the Ninth Circuit. It was a case. Um, it's the it's a securities case, the Securities Litigation Uniform Standard Act. Mm. Really exciting stuff. <laughs> Definitely mm. off Honestly, material. Honestly, offbeat stuff. One of my favorite acts, really. Um, and the question is like whether it bars this group of beneficiaries from filing a state law securities class action against this company Great, called Northern Trust. Oh, this, <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah, that's good. So uh, why apologies are we talking to all the, about this? Apologies to all on. the securities the key, lawyers out The there. key to all of that information is that none of it matters. Okay. Great. None <laughs> of it matters. I mean, I'm sure it matters. It matters to, it matters to the, yeah. Anyway, none of it matters to this discussion. Um, <laughs> yes. It, so in that otherwise incredibly dry and boring ruling uh, on on page 15 of a 20-page opinion that was just, again, just about securities law, we got U.S. Circuit Judge John Owens uh, talking about, he's talking about past precedents. He's talking about, there's there's one past precedent called, uh, a case called DABIT, uh, which stands for some sort of proposition. Again, none of this matters. Uh, <laughs> and another one, a later case uh, called Trois, which apparently clarified what Dabit had said. Okay. I mean, you love to have Trois clarify Dabit. I mean, sure. I mean, Trois really did clarify Dabit, yes. you know? Yes, good. Uh, but so, uh, again, page 15 with no warning at all, Judge Owens drops this line. Northern would like us to read Dabit without considering its clarification in choice, but we will not render choice meaningless the way that Game of Thrones rendered the entire Night King storyline meaningless in its <laughs> final season. <laughs> Choice directly supports our conclusion. You know what? Drive by. I totally get it. I was annoyed by that too. I thought the I thought the Night King would make it until the final episode. Well, wait, 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 wait. He was out on episode three. I get it. I get it. The judge but is mad. I am understand. Before we start airing our own Game of Thrones yes, takes, yes, yes. like, can we appreciate for a second the guy just out of out of damn nowhere uh, pulling up from I, forty? To just I drop. want to drop it into every conversation too. But I so, feel this. Judge. But again, I, I don't mean to belabor the point. But to be clear here, th- th- this was not a light <laughs> ruling peppered with pop culture references. Yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't an allusion to the facts of the case. There wasn't sure. some like Game of Thrones. He wasn't doing like a like thing. a theme. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was. It wasn't apropos in any way to the parties, to the case, to anything. He was just Look, really, really just stuck in his crawl. He have... had a take that he needed to get off yeah. his chest. That's the and... thing. He had to get it off his chest. I'm sure he feels much better now that it's out there, published. I it's just, on Pacer. I just love the idea of him sitting there and being like, <laughs> do I take this to Reddit? Or do I take this to... <laughs> page 15 of the Northern Trust opinion. It also is really nice that it's page 15 because it really comes out of nowhere that it's right in the okay, middle. Okay, I have so many I just have so many questions. I mean, was he planning to get this take into a ruling? Because if you think about it, like that discussion happens in literally every court ruling. Sure. Like, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Like, should Holding we, to should we, should we stick to this precedent or this later precedent? Yeah. Like, it, it wasn't uh, specific I, to the facts of this case in any it way. It just fit Exactly how you wanted it to. But like, he just was a stream of consciousness opening, he was right? writing? He was just hammering away. It's just like, like this maybe Game of Thrones moment. Maybe he's not even that big of a Game of Thrones fan, and he was just googling for things rendered obsolete. So, <laughs> like, and he's just looking for like a like a simile. I would love if things rendered obsolete. <laughs> the very first thing was well, the well, it's, it's it's been in the news recently. Uh, so I, apparently, someone. Someone tweeted at me that this is a thing for Owens that he uh, okay. he's oh. included like random Breaking Bad references in oh. his rulings. Okay, okay. Likes, okay. Well, then he likes good TV. So then I then I withdraw a, my comment. He's, he's occasionally clearly, done this before, he's got, but yeah. You know, a I judge, feel like yeah. a kindred spirit out there for me because if I were a judge, I mean, I'm not saying I would do it because I know you know sometimes it's less appropriate than others, but 
He's watching the same TV shows I am. Yeah. Federal, Peppering him in. Well, I started out with a spoiler warning, and I think yes. I think we can end on a spoiler note here, which is like, are there legal ethics? Are there like recusal questions about like, you know, the attorneys on the case, they haven't watched the show all the way through. If if you're gonna be making takes, do yeah. you need to do you need to redact? Do you need to, you know, how does that work? How does any of this work? Well we'll guys? get we'll get we'll get Strickler on it next week to see if he can talk with us about that. It sounds like a good plan. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for the show today, guys. Thanks, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Steven Trader. Our contributing reporters this week, Jimmy Hoover, Nicole Norea, and Dean Seal. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. The show's available on all the major podcast platforms, and we'd love it if you subscribe and also leave us a written review. It helps other people find us. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week.